Escape Pod 62 July 13, 2006 Today's story, Union Dues, The Baby and the Bathwater, by Jeffrey R. D. Rangel. Hello again, my name is Steve Ely, the name of the podcast is Escape Pod, and this is Geek Dad Intro number 4. So, our son Alex is going to hit 16 months next week. He's already looking very much unlike a baby, and very much like a little boy. He laughs and plays and speaks all day long in his crazy moon language. Of the words we recognize, he knows mama, dada, sometimes extended to da-da-da-da-da-da, dog, cheese, and read book. Read book is one of his favorites. If he ever sees an adult who isn't doing anything, he'll crawl up to you with a book in hand and expect you to immediately perform your function. By the way, if this were any other audience, I'd be doing an intro now about the importance of reading to children. But of the thousands of you, I honestly don't believe there's a single one of you involved with kids who needs to be told this. So I won't preach to this choir. Our latest bemusement with him involves walking. A lot of kids are already walking by Alex's age, and he's pretty much on the verge of it. He can walk fine as long as he's got one hand on anything, but if you make a big deal out of it, he'll sit back down. Most likely, the only things holding him back from walking unsupported are stubbornness and the fact that he's faster crawling. But I formed another theory a while ago. My wife thinks I'm crazy, but she always thinks that, so I wanted to float it past you. We have Alex at daycare during the day. That's worked out really well for everyone. He's currently the oldest child in the nursery room. The kids graduate into the toddler room as soon as they're walking consistently. Now, Alex is a social kid, and he plays with the other one-year-olds. My theory is that he sees his friends start to walk, and then they disappear. He doesn't know that they went into the toddler room. He just knows that they're never seen again. Therefore, walking makes you disappear. I'm not a child psychologist. I have no idea if it's credible that he could make that sort of deduction. Anna had a big laugh over it, and thinks maybe I've gotten too deep into science fiction. That actually made me think deeper about this, and I had a more significant realization. If we take as a working definition that SF is about anything that could happen, but with mechanics that we don't understand, then at a certain age, say 15 months, everything in the world is science fiction. Maybe that's your golden age right there. And that, for a change, takes us directly to today's story. A hard look at moral choices in a world where some babies really are more special than others. We present a third story in Jeffrey R. Durego's superhero saga, Union Dues, Baby in the Bathwater. Like his first two Union Dues stories, Iron Bars in the Glass Jaw and Off-White Lies, this one is an Escape Pod debut. Iron Bars, by the way, was voted our listeners' favorite story last year. And by the fickle currents of podcast scheduling, these last two weeks appear to be a Merlafferty festival. In addition to writing last week's story, she's our narrator this week. And of course, you also know her from I Should Be Writing and Geek Fu Action Grip. So put on your nice suit and get ready to knock on doors. It's story time. Union Dues, The Baby, and The Bathwater by Jeffrey R. Dorigo. I'd forgotten what it was like to sit in a living room. Not plan, not debrief, just sit and talk. The subject could have been better, but I didn't choose this assignment, 
so complaining seems both pointless and counterproductive. The mother, Maria, enters with a tray dominated by a large copper urn filled with what they tell me is Turkish coffee. Manny, the father, hasn't taken his eyes off me since I rung the doorbell, and he isn't happy. I can't blame them for being wary. My costume is probably the least inconspicuous of any of the union marketing department has designed. I am super agile, so they capitalize on that by accentuating every curve of my body. And boy, do I have a hell of a body to accentuate. My costume is yellow, form-fitting spandex. A pink starburst on the right side wraps around from my back and ends with two points up just under my breasts. They don't even give me a cape. My pink-tinted and mirrored eye shield is affixed to a half-head cowl that hides my eyes but lets my shoulder-length blonde hair cascade down. All they can see of my real body is my mouth, part of my nose, and my chin. Maria pours three tiny cups of the coffee. Her hands shake violently. The acrid smell of the brew fills the room. I've never had Turkish coffee before and for a second let the thick, strong, bitter aroma permeate my sinuses. Like all super-agiles, I am wired with a secondary nervous system to drive over a hundred woven layers of fast-fiber muscle tissue, ten times as many as a normal human. We twitch and shiver all the time and literally can't stand still. It's worse when we're nervous, much worse, and I am shivering and twitching now like a faulty paint-mixing machine. Manny Jr. snoozes in a playpen draped in thick black rubber. He fusses now and then, but doesn't wake up. They kept him away from me since I arrived, but he has all the telltale physical signs of a classic energy manipulator. Completely hairless, iridescent white skin, almost glowing blue eyes, a stunning contrast to the tangle of thick black hair, wiry mustache, and eyebrows of his father. This is the first time I've ever felt completely exposed, and all I'm doing is trying to sit still on a red velvet sofa in front of a kidney-shaped glass coffee table. The union should have sent a suit. A lawyer or one of the luminaries. They're always better with the PR stuff. And right now we need all the PR help we can get. A dead teenage genius in Wyoming. Dead heroes on the mirror and in Antarctica. The media has been all over us. Comic and toy sales have bottomed out. The Union of Superheroes Power Hour cartoon show was just canceled. Every public appearance turns into a near riot. Intercity Police Incorporated has asked for special powers to arrest us, a clear violation of the Charter, after the fiasco in Miami, where Ultra Magnus went nuts and killed three undetected supers trying to rob a bank. And now this? How the hell can they spin this into something positive? The Union figures an active character better imparts a feeling of calm and confidence at first contact. The lawyers will come later, probably next week. All I do is probe the parents' receptiveness and try to put them at ease. Mr. Fidalgo's anger radiates off his squat, powerful body like waves of heated air. I don't even register on the size scale, but I can feel it. He wants to smash my head in with a bat. Recruitment is always a risk. There's always a chance that the subject will snap and try to fight us off physically. That's why they send a member of a first team. If some nervous 16-year-old who can lift a loaded dump truck doesn't want to get in the jump jet, you have to have the appropriate force there, just in case. Worse, the whole process is secret, or supposed to be. Otherwise, we'd have a hell of a time generating origin stories for the comics. We pay well for new members, a cool million most of the time, sometimes a little more, sometimes a little less. 
The luminaries have a sliding scale or something. If the parents are dirt poor, then 200 grand will set them for life. If the parents are wealthy, well, it gets a lot more expensive. The payoffs are hush money, and so far all but a few of the parents have taken it without causing a fuss. It's worse when the parents have money, because they have an education, and lawyers. They have lots and lots of lawyers. At least the charter gives us a little insulation. It's virtually against the law for the parents of a union member to go to the press. The Protection of Identity and Practices Clause keeps everything after first contact behind closed doors where it should be. All I have to worry about now is Mom and Dad. They aren't dirt poor, but this place certainly isn't a mansion, and according to the dossier, both parents are only high school graduates, so the chances of them knowing the law or a good lawyer to interpret the law is slim to none. You have to understand the implications of Junior's condition. I fan out the standard agreement and a sheaf of brochures beside the copper coffee urn. I flip through the brochures. The cover shows the luminaries, the first true superheroes, and all their costumed 50-year-old glory smiling out between two intertwined flags, the stars and stripes, and the tricolored union banner. The same picture hangs in the main foyer of every pyramid in North America. The rest of the material is more current and features the best known of us posed in various pyramid facilities. Ultra Magnus standing beside a gang of smiling policemen and firefighters. Another shows Landar reading to a classroom of preschoolers. Megaton instructing new recruits in the gymnasium and Kindred comforting a family as their house burns down in the background. It's never really dawned on me that the brochures managed to beautifully portray events and activities I've never seen as long as I've worn the tights and mask. The brochures don't show the inner-city cops taking pot shots at our jump jets. They don't show the protesters outside of school where Landar makes an appearance, or the new recruits work to physical breaking point for a year before they're even allowed third-string uniformed status. And they don't show how we didn't put out the fire or didn't rescue the family. But since when is a marketing campaign ever focused on truth and reality? None of the brochures even mention the village, our very own island of misfit toys, built in the middle of Antarctica, where the non-functional and non-cooperative supers convalesce, safe from the world and her problems until they choose to serve the Union, die of old age, or go insane and walk out into the sub-zero cold. Your son is not like you. He's very special. He needs the kind of care that only the Union can give him. It's only been a few weeks, Maria says. Her voice cracks on the last word. Junior was fine and then started shocking me just a little. Like when you rub a balloon on a wool sweater and then touch a doorknob? She glances into the playpen. Manny interjects. I found her three weeks ago on the nursery floor. She was out cold. Junior lay on the floor crying. I don't remember anything but a tingle in my breast. He was fussy and hungry. When I put him to my nipple, he... I blacked out. I tell them I understand, that I sympathize and empathize. But I honestly can't begin to guess what they feel. Is it sadness, heartbreak, or relief? Manny drove us to the hospital. That's when we learned he was different. He was wrong. The emergency room doctors called the union. They had to. The charter says so. Any manifestation has to be reported, but we don't rely on the normals to actively drop a dime on their sons and daughters, especially now that we're the scapegoat for just about everything wrong in the USA. Crime running rampant? Blame the union for not fighting crime. Hey, we didn't force the normals to dismantle the civil and social service organizations. 
Economy and the crapper? Blame the union. But hey, we didn't mangle the trade pacts and agreements that keep things in balance. And now that so many people have slipped into abject poverty, forced to steal to survive, you complain that we don't clamp down on them? He's a Fidalgo. He stays with us. He is my son. Mr. Fidalgo crosses the room and picks up the gilded silver frame with Junior's birth picture inside. Manny stares at it in silence. The boy there is hairy, like his dad, smiling and wide-eyed. Maria adds, You have to understand, Mrs. Kinetic Girl. We can't have another child, Kinetic Girl. Manny's birth was a miracle as it is. Maria's voice trailed off, and she turned slowly to look at the baby in the playpen. I'm barren now. There has to be an exception. How do I respond to that? Suddenly I wish I wasn't sent here alone. If the Union lets even a nine-month-old avoid service, then it sets a precedent. Suddenly, thirteen is too young. Then seventeen. Then just until he finishes college. The Union can't let that happen. There's too much time for a super to go evil, go freelance, or worse, entertain notions of divinity. Manny slings his arm around Maria's shoulders as she weeps. You cannot take him. I will not allow it. You have to understand, Mr. and Mrs. Fidalgo, you don't have claim to Junior. Not anymore. We offer a compensation package. In this case, because Junior is so young, twice the normal amount. You don't have to take it, but we do have to take him. If he was allowed to stay, what would that tell every other super that manifests? That they have a choice? That their life is more important than their responsibility to put that power to appropriate use? His responsibility is to be here and grow up in a safe and healthy household with parents that love him. For God's sake, he's nine months old. What responsibilities to use his power appropriately does an infant have? If this wasn't my son we were talking about, I'd laugh at the stupidity of it all. Please try and understand. The charter makes it clear. I slide the document across the table. Read it. It's the law now. He has to come with us. It's better for you and all of us that he does. The hell with you and your union of baby stealers. Manny slams the picture back on the mantel. Now get out of my house. Mr. Fidalgo, I wish you wouldn't make this any more unpleasant for either of us. I empathize with your position. I was there too once, and I know exactly what you're going through. I can't lie to them and say the separation gets easier over time. It doesn't. I cried for months, even when I was too tired to speak and so sore from training that I used to lie on my bunk and pray I'd die in my sleep. I wanted my parents back, and I know they wanted me back just the same, which made it all the more difficult. You don't know a thing. Where do you think I came from? I was a child, a little older than Manny Jr., sure, but I was still a child. The Union came for me, too, just like this. And just like Junior's going to do, I went with them. My mom and dad cried. I know they did. But the money took some of the sting off. At least, I hope it. Money? You think this is about money? We're talking about our flesh and blood. The sum total of everything Maria and I have worked day and night to make possible. We struggled through a stillbirth, two miscarriages, and God only knows how many false positive pregnancy tests until we'd given up any hope of carrying on. But God doesn't let the faithful suffer for long. He tests, but he doesn't punish. Not as faithful. Not us. We'd given up, and then, like a miracle, Maria was pregnant. We knew this one would come to term because it had to come to term. Manny Jr. is a miracle. Our miracle. 
humanity's miracle, and you cannot take him. You can walk away. Maria strokes Junior's bald head, and he wriggles against the rubber and leather fingers. He makes soft baby babble while his mother coos to him. And then what? Maybe you and Manny are able to take care of him, but what about the others? What about his grandmother or his cousins? What about the kids he'll interact with at school or strangers at the store? They won't be wearing electrician's gloves when they touch him. Manny glances at Maria. I can see the flash of recognition in his eyes. He turns to me. We'll homeschool. It's not fair to him. Manny's arguments become an echo from my past, the same argument my parents had with Ultra Magnus four years ago. Sure, I was older than Junior, almost an adult in relative terms, but the situation wasn't any less traumatic. I'd manifested two weeks after my first menstruation. I was walking home from St. Mary's School for Girls with a group of friends. A taxi veered off the street and I jumped, something like 30 feet almost straight up, and landed softly atop the telephone line as the car plowed into the pole below. No one was killed, but they all saw me crouched up there like a frightened cat. I made the news that night as the firefighters scratched their head and wondered how in the hell I ended up on the cable dead center between two poles without a tree in sight. A week later, the Union came to visit with an armful of brochures. Manny says, Don't talk to us about fairness. What sort of life will he have here with you, Mr. Fidalgo? Having to stay in the house all the time? No friends? He'll have friends. You don't think we can do it because your parents couldn't do it. Maybe it isn't us at all. Maybe it's you. Jealous that we will do whatever we can to make sure Junior grows up right and happy while yours handed you over without you don't know anything. Silence from them again. I start to breathe heavy. They've rattled me. I need to get out of here. You'll get a visit from our lawyers early next week. If you try to run, we'll catch you. If you try to hide, we'll find you. This isn't about you and the Union. It's about Junior and what's best for him. I drop a copy of the charter on the table. Someone barks through a bullhorn outside. There's a large crowd of protesters gathered on the street at the end of the concrete walkway. The media, too, waiting along the fringe of the mob, their cameras pointed at the front porch. I can almost hear the saliva dripping from their maws. Great. Now it's even more complicated. You called the media? Panic time, kinetic girl. They've already broken the trust. Now what the hell do we do? I punch the mic controls built into my gauntlet and start feeding the sounds back to the Boston Pyramid. I need to be alone for a moment. Is there a spare room I could use? Freaks and demons out of our neighborhood, leave the miracle baby. Freaks and demons out of our neighborhood, leave the miracle baby. I ease up from the couch and squeeze the corner before peering through the curtains. I want to be away from the door and the line of sight of the crowd. Now what the hell do I do? I'm sorry, I manage. My voice cracks and I hope they don't notice. I wish it could be a different way. The chanting drowns out Manny's heavy breathing as he rushes to the window. You see those people, kinetic girl? They understand. They know that a baby isn't something that the Union or anyone else can come and take away. Maria answers me. The bathroom, down the hall to the left, first door. The baby begins to fuss in earnest, awakened, no doubt, by the angry cacophony. Tiny flashes of light flicker up over the rubber matting. Tiny claps of thunder, like the sound of someone slapping a book on the coffee table, echo out of the playpen. Maria slips on a pair of elbow-length electrician's gloves and pulls the kid from his slumber. 
Manny drapes a thick rubber sheet over her shoulder so she can soothe the baby. I excuse myself and find the bathroom. It's nice. I haven't been in a small bathroom since I was a kid. It's funny to see only a single toilet in a bathtub. The union bathrooms are communal. Toilets and shower stalls. There's privacy, but only if you stay in your little two-room flat. I punch the code to pyramid control. Kinetic girl calling. Darksider answers. We've been listening. Did they really call the TV stations? Affirmative. I glance out the window. There are five trucks, and one of them is nationwide cable. There's no way to de-escalate the situation now. Back off. Leave them the charter, but take everything else. Leave it to the lawyers? I notice the tiles on the shower wall. They're blue and white. I bet there's plenty of hot water here. I bet I could shower for 45 minutes and never even worry about running out. Darksider hasn't answered. I said, leave it to the lawyers? Finally, he answers. On second thought, take the charter, too. We can deny this was related to the kid. We'll wait. We have time. Time? Time for what? The kid's flicking lightning like there's no tomorrow. This is not usual protocol. I study the crowd outside. They're even more agitated than before. Someone's going to get killed. We'll deal with the state when that happens. Until then, it's better to stand down. No sense making things worse for us by taking the kid now. We'll wait until there's a mistake and one or both of his parents are electrocuted. I'm dumbstruck. Aren't we supposed to take the kid to prevent that? He's a baby. So goddamn what he's a baby? So he stays until a more opportune time for us to recruit without a media frenzy. That's what. Jesus. Save it, kinetic girl. You know this is the best way. They didn't fucking ask for this, Darksider. They're parents. We have a duty to... You have a duty to abide by the terms of the Charter. Make one more protest and I'll swear on the tricolor banner that I'll have you sent up for insubordination. Go fuck yourself. I snap the connection closed and tear the gauntlet off. I hope it's enough to shut the mic down. Then think better of it and stuff the piece of gear into Fidalgo's toilet tank. Manny and Maria are still sitting in the living room when I return. I drop into the seat opposite them. They can tell I'm upset because I'm shaking even worse. I can't even pick up the coffee cup. Manny speaks softly. What happens now? I leave. I want to shove all the union crap into the trash, but if I come back empty-handed, I'll be pulled in front of the tribunal before sunset. I nod and lower my eyes while gathering the brochure, the charter, and the offer letter. I fold them and slip the paper into a little pouch on my red belt. I can see the disbelief in their faces. We're sorry to have taken your time. My voice cracks a little, but I manage to hide the worst of it. What if he gets better? If this goes away? Can't we wait? He doesn't have a disease. This isn't a condition or illness to be treated. He needs to be raised and nurtured in a safe environment until he can be trained to control his abilities. You talk to the pediatrician. Maria adds, he needs to be loved and raised here, where he belongs. They expected a battle, and I just capitulated. They know something's wrong. I can't leave them without telling the truth. You don't understand. The union isn't going away just because I'm leaving. But you won't hear from us again unless you change your mind. I drop a card on the table with the 800 number of our phone bank. There won't be any lawyers. There won't be any police. But the union isn't done. We'll be back, but... You'll never see us. Manny's face twists. His eyebrows rise slightly. 
We'll never see you. Maria looks nervous. I stare at them in silence for a full minute. You blew it. You called the news. You arranged a protest. You had to make it difficult. Now you've won. Congratulations. When Junior gets old enough to throw a tantrum, when he gets old enough to be angry at you, like all little kids get, when he can focus, he's going to kill you both. Oh, it won't be murder. Two-year-olds don't commit murder. They have tantrums. They get into a rage. They don't know any better. And when Junior does, and one or both of you dies, the state will take him and give him to us. I pause long enough to see the color drain from their faces. Thanks for the coffee. It was nice meeting you. I turn toward the door. The crowd is bigger now and angrier. I step to the porch. They seem surprised that I'm not carrying the baby. I have a car waiting at the end of the block. I walk down the steps. The family follows. Junior still hangs on Maria's shoulder. They stare at me, dumbfounded. I take a quick look back at the happy little baby cradled in Maria's rubber gloves, then stride down the walkway. The crowd cheers. I see protest signs and a tide of angry and frightened faces. That's the clincher. They fear us now. And what the normals fear, they have to destroy, even at the cost of their own lives. I wonder if a shepherd ever died at the hooves and teeth of his flock. A minister opens the gate and brushes past me. Heathen, he whispers. Abomination. Save it for the parishioners, reverend, I say and push out into the crowd. The normals think they've won, but next week or next year, when we come back, there won't be any smiles or crowds. Just a meat wagon. Some police, maybe, and a special container for the baby. Unless the parents call and ask us back. But they won't. Manny and Maria will go back inside, put Junior to sleep, and lay awake wondering if they can ever stop being afraid. The media rush the gate. A dozen cameras whir into focus. A porcupine of microphones wave in front of my face. No comment. The union will release a statement through their official channels. I glide through the throng, feeling their hands brush against me, see smugness drawn across their faces. Only a year ago, they would have asked me breathlessly for autographs and to pose for pictures. The telephone wire runs along the road, down toward the seashore a half mile away. I leap up, twist twice, and flip. My feet land softly on the cable thirty feet over the crowd. I crouch there like a cat. The crowd doesn't even look up. And that was our story. I personally am really digging these Union Dues stories. I like the idea of a four-color universe with so many shades of gray. If you're enjoying them too, please let us know. Steve, it's Lee Murdoch from the Dark Side Podcast. I just wanted to let you know uh, that the story this morning was amazing, and I already called Murr's line to tell her so. Um, keep them coming. You know, every week it just gets better and better for the past, well, shoot, it's been over a year now, and I've never been disappointed. So just uh, want to let you know that what you do is very special, and I really appreciate it. We had an amazing response to last week's story. Murr's time travel piece, I look forward to remembering you, struck a chord with a lot of people. I expected it to be well-received as a funny piece with some touching moments, but we received more than one note from folks that this was the second escape pod story that made them cry, Mike Resnick's Down Memory Lane being the first. 
It's certainly not our intent to blur anyone's vision, but we will take it as a compliment. We got another great email by Brian, a recent PayPal subscriber, who made my week with a list of top 10 reasons to listen to Escape Pod. I'll speak quickly here. Number 10, music by Daikaiju. 9, The Burning Bush. 8, Corporate Networks Powered by Elder Gods. 7, Surprise Flash Fiction in the Middle of the Week. 6, Descriptions of Magical Food. 5, Lesbian Zombies. 4, Scott Sigler reading Twisted Superhero Violence. 3, Worlds Where Poetry is Magic, Powerful Magic. 2, Discovering with Tears in Your Eyes that Merle Lafferty is not a wannabe writer. And number 1, It's Story Time. Very cool. Oh, and a bit of news. I mentioned in passing last week that Escape Artists Inc. was spinning off a sister podcast to Escape Pod. This one's called Pseudopod, and it focuses on horror. It's going to be edited by my friends Ben Phillips and Merle Lafferty. Man, there's that name again. And although the website's still coming together, we do at least have the submission guidelines up and are open now for story submissions. You can find it at pseudopod.org. That's P-S-E-U-D-O, pod. If the guidelines look a lot like Escape Pod's guidelines, that's not a coincidence. It will, once again, be a paying market. Escape Pod is a production of the aforementioned Escape Artists, Inc., and is released on a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives license. Stop me if you've heard this before. Oh wait, you have. Our music is by permission of Dai Kaiju, a giant meteor of rock and roll hurtling toward the Earth. Ground Zero is at daikaiju.org. And that was our show for this week. I'll close how I began, with the advice of one of my favorite people. Until next week, read book.